hotels in America. I, I don't know where they got the, st- the statistic, but 6% were, were open to African-Americans, only 6%. So 94% weren't. Uh, is, is that, yes. uh, is, is, if that doesn't tell you you need a guidebook, I don't know what does. Exactly. That was actually the statistics from the government. The government had uh, a division that tracked this type of information uh, as a part of an overall look at hotels in America. And when people did research into these statistics, these are things that they found out later about the stats. Um, yeah, there's there were difficulties all across America. And we, we think of the classic song, Route 66. You get right. your kicks from Route 66. Sure. But on that drive along Route 66 going to California, there were very few places for African-Americans to stay. And one of the longest drives where there were no facilities or few at all was when you left New Orleans on your way to California. Between New Orleans and California, the first place where African-Americans could find rest and food was the La Luz Motel, L-U-Z, in El Paso, Texas. That was an 1,100-mile drive Mm. that you had to make to reach that. And so many people told, told me stories about doing that drive and how they would pack extra gasoline. They would pack sandwiches. They would pack everything they needed. And they would know that they could only pull off the road during certain times of day and do whatever they had to do and then get back into the car and keep going because there were just no facilities along there. And if you got stopped along the road, what protection did you have? Boy, that gives a whole new meaning to the Nat King Cole version of that song, uh, which was released, what, Mid forties, I think. Exactly. It's with a trio. Uh, the one of the things that, that your book brings out, and you did podcasts so beautifully with this uh, effort, with the voices of the folks that were recalling either family or uh, past generations that dealt with the dichotomy that that was brought out by the Green Book, and you and I don't remember that the individual, and, and I, I would hope you do, but he was talking about being stopped. Uh, in by police and the children reacted because they they saw their father taking a new sort of uh sort of a, a being very low key with the cops to to avoid trouble obviously but the the kids didn't understand like well and the mother is quieting them and telling no no, oh. no this is no time to talk uh, talk up uh, that that was a very powerful memory because it brings out well it comes right to them to the present doesn't it i mean we we, it does we we didn't go too far with uh, having problems with that uh, recently exactly steve that story was told by hezekiah jackson who is part of the foot soldiers of uh, birmingham alabama uh that story stays with me there are about four others that i live with day to day because I can't quite shake the feelings that that story evoked when I see certain incidents today. So what had happened in that story was that uh, his mother's aunt Beattie had died and she was a domestic who lived in Detroit. And so they, as many black people did during that period of time, traveled up for her funeral. Beattie's husband didn't have a car, so he asked Hezekiah's father to drive to the employer's house to pick up BD's final paycheck. And they pulled up 
in this neighborhood where everything was beautiful. Hezekiah tells the story that he thought he was like in a fantasy or some television <laughs> show. And as they pulled up to the house, uh, the police appeared out of nowhere mm. and they start to challenge his father calling his father boy and saying, you know, do you work for some rich white folk? Where do you get this nice car? In the black communities, as in the one where I was raised, you did not disrespect your elders in that way. You were taught that your father, your uncle were authority figures. So for these kids to hear their father spoken about that way was very traumatic. And their mother had their eyes, had her eyes locked on them looking in the rear view mirror and she was telling them to be quiet. But his brother said, did you see that white man call daddy boy? That statement alone, Steve, still mm -hmm. makes me think of all the collateral damage that happens in these situations even today. It's not just about this one person being stopped or being beaten or being uh, harassed on the road. It's about all the people who see this, mm -hmm. who take this information in and how does it affect their behavior. So sometimes when I hear stories about black men running from police or and being shot or killed by the police, I can imagine it's part of the collateral damage of seeing all of these things where black people are treated badly by police. But people don't think of it that way. But that's what I'm left with from that story. That's a powerful story. And I was so happy that Hezekiah shared it with us. Exactly. It really puts one in the in the place that you need to think about these things. One of the things uh, we're talking with Alvin Hall about his book, uh, Driving the Green Book. I went back and, and looked online to see, well, let's see how my my town here of Peoria did, Peoria, Illinois. And yes. I did find, I, I can't tell you the year, in my 40s or 50s, but it is listed in one, but there was only one, one uh, sort of a list and it was somebody's private home and they called the what, tourist homes. That was, yeah, was that the, the phrase used where you could stay, I, I assume, um, yes. you know, for the night. And, and yes, tourist homes were much more widespread than people imagine. So I was raised in a small community in Florida, and everybody traveled for the Baptist conventions, the choir conventions, the home economics teacher went to their meeting. And in those days, if you didn't have any place to stay, somebody in the town would open up their house. Perhaps it was an uncle who was off fighting the war or they had an extra room. So you would stay in that house and they would treat you so nice. They'd have food <laughs> for you, they'd have everything laid out. So it was really like an early version of Airbnb mm -hmm. or uh, something like that. But that was the way that people got around and made uh, a life for themselves. Think about this: of the HBCUs, the historical, the historic black colleges and universities, when the bands would go for those really great competitions or the weekends for the football team, where would the people stay if there were no uh, hotels in the town or few that would allow them? Relatives and other people. This is where you have the network of sororities and fraternities and other social organizations that stepped in and provided Black people with a safe, clean, and fun place to stay. You know, I was just thinking when uh, you, we were talking earlier, Alvin, about uh, uh, the, the reaction 
uh, let's say the white reaction to the green. I didn't know that. Or, you know, I, I can't imagine that. And then you have to think for a minute, uh, you know, well, most of us, if we're sports fans, have heard about uh, great athletes or teams that, you know, when they had black players, that that, that individual couldn't stay with yes. with the, the rest of the teammates in, in the white hotel or whatever. And you had to think, if you didn't think, and, and I'm thinking now, well, guess what? That was that was a, somebody famous or, or at least uh, celebrated. What do you think about the average Joe that that uh, you know was trying to probably find a room or something like that? You know, one needs to think about these things a little bit because I think that's what the Green Book does. That's what your book does. That provokes thought that you know, hey, guess what? This you, you got to wake up a little bit here, folks. Um, what, but it wasn't know, just white people, Steve, who didn't know this, right? If you think about people from Africa, they didn't know about this world either in America. If you're raised in Africa, I remember I recently read uh, Cast, a book by Isabel Wilkerson, and the movie is currently coming out. And one of the things that statements in the book was that there are no Black people in Africa. And it was because Black people didn't consider themselves Black. You know, it just wasn't a distinction that existed in that country. So because they didn't have this sort of segregation experience in America, they too would not know know about this. My friends from Asia had no idea about this history in America until this book came out. And many of them find it puzzling because when their relatives came over during this time of uh, a lot of people moving from Europe or Asia to America, they had never thought about the fact that they didn't see Black people in their communities. They had never thought about why that was until this book offered them a perspective on this, a lens through which to see this, which was very eye-opening for them. We're talking with Alvin Hall about the Green Book, the writing, driving the Green Book, which you did, uh, what, 12 cities in 12 days? Is that uh, how That's you did right. <laughs> that's that's a that's a road trip for sure. And- it was. It, we started in Detroit. Although, in truth, the first interview I did was in New York City with the artist Derek Adams, who had done an exhibition which has been traveling across America called Sanctuary, and his exhibition was based on his research around the Green Book. But the first interview we did with somebody who had the on-the-road experience with this was in Detroit. We met this wonderful man, uh, Jaman Jordan, and he's he's a tour guide in Detroit. And he took us to places in Detroit that were the center of Black culture, thriving businesses in the middle of Detroit that uh, died when integration came, but also the building of a highway system. But with all of this, Steve, there was some magical magical moments. One of my memories I will always hold dear was when I interviewed McKinley Jackson, who had left high school because he only wanted to be a musician at Motown. That was his dream. And on his first day in Motown as a studio musician, he worked with the legendary Smokey Robinson on the song Ooh, baby, baby, (laughs) I did you wrong. My heart went out to play. And in the game, I lost you. What a price to pay. I mean, that story and his joy about that. And then he told about 
how when the Motown would do the reviews and they would go through the South, they would encounter all of this racism because most of them had been up North. They had right. not quite experienced the type of Jim Crow regulations that were, or black codes that were state by state different throughout the South, but they were able to look back on that without hostility, with a sense of reality, but also they didn't get trapped by the hatred that that could have generated. You had an interview in there with, I think, Noel Trent in Memphis. Oh yeah, Noel, Dr. Noel Trent, yeah, yeah. At, at the, at the uh, Lorraine Motel. And, and oh yeah, well, we, we have to mention that because that's, that's a, a, a key part of your story. Um, but I, I got a kick out of hearing her voice when she laughed and said, yeah, we, we had to get it when we took a trip. We had to get up at 5 a.m. And, you know, it was just a holdover from, I guess, they didn't have to probably, but that was what you did. You just, you know, you mentioned earlier, you didn't want to be in certain places at night uh, if right. you were taking a long trip. So you started early. And yes. you know, that, that was still the, the code um, she was recalling. Uh, You're absolutely right. Yeah. You are absolutely right. And it was called the magical hour. And one black family after another, after another, basically talked about getting up in the morning, the night before they would prepare all of the food they needed, the tea cakes, what's now called the shoebox lunch with fried chicken, uh, deviled eggs with no mayonnaise in them because that would spoil, a cooler of uh, water that had been boiled in many cases uh, would also contain soda and that would be all packed up and people would get up at the wee hours of the morning because you want to get on the road before the traffic gets too heavy and the cops get out but you also want to make it to your destination before sunset because the last thing you wanted to do was to get caught driving through a sundown town that you didn't know about at night. So right. these things were passed down from one generation to the next, to the next. Even when we did this road trip, Steve, we left early in the morning. <laughs> That's the way to go. Uh, tell us, uh, if you would, a little about the, the, the Lorraine Hotel, Motel, because that's, that's such a pivotal part, I know, um, yes. in, in Memphis, certainly, and, and, the, and the country. Yes. Well, everyone associates the Lorraine Motel with the place where Martin Luther King was assassinated in 1968. And that will always be true. Uh, that changed the course of American history. It At that moment, every African-American of a certain age can tell you where they were and what they were doing. But in interviewing Dr. Noel Trent, I discovered that the restaurant has this, that the motel has this amazing history. And right now, Steve, I'm working on a documentary film about the history of the Lorraine Motel. Oh, wonderful. Uh, it is so exciting to have this opportunity. And this is how things evolve out of this. The Lorraine Motel was bought by the Baileys, Walter and Lorie Bailey in 1945. And they named it the Lorraine after the song Sweet Lorraine by mm -hmm. by uh, Nat King Cole. Oh, sure. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, yes. And they were a partnership in the restaurant and they did all of these innovative things. They built a second story. They built a swimming pool so that 
people could come there because remember swimming pools were segregated in those days, but you, as a black person, you could come to the Lorraine. One of the most amazing things about doing the film project is that during the research, we found all this footage of people frolicking in the pool at the Lorraine and having a great time. The musicians from Stax Records would stay there. And this included Booker T and the MGs, the first integrated soul band in America. And they would stay at the Lorraine Motel. Think about this. While the rest of Memphis practiced segregation, the Baileys did not. And some great songs were written at the Lorraine Motel. One was Wait to the Midnight Hour by oh, Wilson really? Pickett. Wow. So yeah, so all of these discoveries I'm sort of mining and exploring in more detail as we start working on this film, which should go in production, we think in early January, about the Lorraine Motel. It is an icon. Eventually, of course, after Martin Luther King was killed there, uh, Walter Bailey soldiered forth, keeping it open because his wife died on the day of Martin Luther King's funeral after she had uh, a, an embolism on the day he was shot at the hotel, at the motel. And so all of that irony is rich. And so you can imagine the emotions that are associated with that for the family. And after that, the hotel fell on hard times and eventually it was auctioned on the steps of the Shelby County uh, uh, courthouse. But the best part of it is that a group of African-American business people and politicians got together and saved the Lorraine Motel. They raised the money to buy it and turn it into what it is today, the National Civil Rights Museum at the Lorraine Motel. That's great. Well, and that's uh, your project is forthcoming. Uh, will we see it in 24? Yes, you will. Very yes, you good. will. Yes, we signed the director up last week. And oh, he's, a, he's an Emmy award-winning, Peabody award-winning director on the project. Um, it's, it's, an, it's an exciting evolution. Wonderful. Well, it's been great just talking with you. Is Alvin Hall, the author of Driving the Green Book. And, you know, in that interview that, that I referenced earlier, I think um, the, the, the closing of that, there was talk about, you know, the importance of the Green Book, which, you know, I think we can readily recognize. But it was an act of resistance, which is so you know, mind-boggling the courage and the and, and the spirit which went in. But I think, and it might have been you who said this, but it just it resonates with me. It was also an act of resilience, and I yes. think that's that's just such a marvelous thing to go on with. Um, what's your thought on that? There's no desire. There's no denying that it was an act of resistance because we are not gonna tolerate these limits. We're gonna figure out a way around them. That old saying in the black community of making a way out of no way. And if you think of the phrase no way as a political statement, right? Then making a way out of that is really an act of resistance. The resilience was to show how these communities grew, how they prospered at these times, how Black people found a way to have a good time, to pursue the American dream parallel to that of the white world and still have a good time, to have money, to send their kids to college, to build something for the next generation. That's resilience. 
But also, Steve, there's one word in all of this that remains at the core for me in thinking about both the podcast series and the book, the grace of African-Americans in the face of what they experienced, what we experienced, that we did not become a hostage to this. We did not, we did not become embittered. We did not have that sense of vengeance that many people would have had as a result of this. We recognize that it was our role to make a way through this and help America deliver the promises of the Constitution to all people in America. That was the most gracious thing that we did for America. Boy, that's a, if that isn't a lesson for all of us, I don't know what is. But uh, we wish you the best. And I know you're traveling, so have safe travels as you go about. Uh, not, not, you don't need the Green Book anymore, Alvin, but definitely, <laughs> definitely uh, safe travels. And we look forward to your, your project uh, with the Lorraine Hotel in uh, t- next year. We, Thank you very much, Steve. I'm very glad we had this interview and I enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks so much, Alvin. Take care. You're welcome. Bye-bye.